Well, good morning, Antioch. Uh, great to be here with you this morning. And we do have a lot to be thankful for, and that's some of the subject matter that we'll be talking about today. Uh, my name's Rick. I'm one of the elders here. And it's my great privilege this morning to put a bow on the several weeks long series that we've been doing on the Apostles' Creed, which is written on both of these banners. Uh, and the topic that we come to at the very end of the creed this morning is the three phrases, we believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So let's uh, commit our time to the Lord and uh, then we'll dive right in. True and living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just come before you today with hearts of thankfulness as we talk about mysteries and wonders about our future. Uh, may your Holy Spirit guide us as we delve into your word that we may understand truth about these things and be all the more grateful and worshipful at the end of the time. Amen. So up until this point in our, our look into the creed, We've been talking almost primarily about theology. That is, uh, affirmations of the Christian faith about God, his, his nature, his work. Only today, as we get to the 11th hour of the creed, as it were, do we talk a little bit about anthropology, the Christian understanding about humans, human nature and such. And we get into a little bit of what's theologically known as eschatology, an understanding about the end times, uh, things in the future. Um, I would suggest that we learned a little bit about anthropology early on. So anthropology in any religious or worldview system would include answers to questions like, where did we come from? What is our nature? And what is our destiny? Um, the creed implied where we came from when early on Pete took us through the phrase that said the Father Almighty is the maker of heaven and earth. And we learned at that time that, that the phrase heaven and earth is a merism, which means all things. It's not just talking about those heavenly bodies there and this planet earth here. It's covering all things. And so by implication, the creed suggests that we came as a special creation of God. Of course, the scriptures and Christian belief don't leave it at an implication. The scriptures go into great detail about this special creation of our, our earliest ancestors, Adam and Eve, right? But it's not until this point in the creed, laid on here, and the phrase, the forgiveness of sins, that we come to a little bit more about the nature of humanity. In fact, when we went through the work of the Son, the creed matter-of-factly took us through the history of his conception and his birth and his death on a Roman cross and his burial without any context for that. And the question would be, why in the world would the creator God have to become a human and die an excruciating and humiliating death? Well, it's not until we get to the phrase forgiveness of sins that we get an inkling of the why of that. It turns out that we are people who are in need of the forgiveness of sins. And so while, while the... Uh, the creed has been anything but exhaustive, in fact, very succinct in affirming the different beliefs of Christianity. Let me suggest that this small phrase, the forgiveness of sins, has to do the work of covering more essential Christian doctrines than any of the other phrases we've looked at. So 
The idea of the forgiveness of sins has to cover the Christian doctrines of the fall and of original sin. The scriptures teach us that our earliest ancestors, Adam and Eve, rebelled against an all-holy God and fell into sin. What happened at that point was that they broke relationship with God, with self, with others, and with the rest of creation. But Christianity goes on to teach that not only did they sin, but we inherited their sinful nature. Not only do we sin, but we are sinful by nature. Um, the, the great 17th century inventor and physicist and founder of modern science, Blaise Pascal, considered the human condition to be the greatest enigma, the thing most in need of explanation. How is it, asked Pascal, that humans are capable of such greatness, works of art and music and invention and uh, philanthropy and heroism and selfless sacrifice, but at the same time, we're capable of such depths of depravity and violence and injustice. And Pascal, like a lot of other good thinkers throughout the age, have found in Christianity the uniquely satisfying explanation for the human enigma. Christianity teaches that we are created in the image of God and hence our capacity for greatness, but at the same time we are fallen and hence our propensity towards uh, violence and evil. The British uh, journalist Malcolm Muggeridge said that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. Um, the, probably the most popular competing view to the depravity of man in our culture and recent history would be what's called secular humanism. And this is the idea that mankind is basically good and that where we have problems like wars and poverty and injustice, the solution to those problems is just a little better education and a little more equitable distribution of the wealth, right? Secular humanism had its heyday a little over 100 years ago at the beginning of the 20th century. But the subsequent century was one that gave us two world wars, ongoing civil wars on every inhabited continent and continuing poverty and injustice everywhere we look. So the 20th century not only uh, refuted secular humanism both indirectly and directly, because one of the claims of secular humanism is that it's religion that is responsible for more war and, and death than any other ideology. But in the 20th century, of course, it was four men who most consistently acted out the ideals of secular humanism who were responsible for the killing, the murdering of more than 100 million people of their own. And of course, I'm talking about Stalin and Lenin and Mao and Pol Pot. But Christianity doesn't stop at affirming the fallenness of humanity, but goes on to talk about God's plan of redemption for humanity. And it begins at the cross. It begins with the forgiveness of our sins, but it continues on to the redemption and reconciliation of all of creation. So these three small words and one rather larger word, the forgiveness of sins, have to cover the duty of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. This is the Christian idea that comes from scripture that says, what happened on the cross was that Jesus exchanged his perfect righteousness for our sinfulness, our unrighteousness. 
that he took upon himself the penalty that was due us so that we don't have to, to, to take that penalty. Flowing out of that and the accomplished work of Christ on the cross is the Christian doctrine of justification, which says that when the Father looks at us, he neither sees us nor our sins, he neither sees us as sinful nor does he see our sins, what he sees is his own son. He sees us clothed in the righteousness that is Jesus's. More than that, the forgiveness of sins entails the doctrine of adoption, whereby based on Christ's accomplished work on the cross, we are not merely exonerated criminals, but God makes us his own sons and daughters and sees us as the brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus. Flowing out of that is the doctrine of sanctification, which is the idea that as we follow Jesus, as we uh, submit to the Holy Spirit and as we study our scriptures, we in fact grow in righteousness. It's a process that won't be complete in this life, but we are being sanctified as we submit to the Holy Spirit. So I would submit that we could talk about this phrase, the forgiveness of sins, every third Sunday for an entire calendar year without repeating ourselves or exhausting the topic. But my task this morning is to spend a third of what little time I have with you because I've got two other phrases of Christian affirmation to deal with. And so we'll turn to that now and get into the uh, resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And first of all, I need to point out that the creed is here affirming not Jesus' resurrection, but our resurrection. That is, the creed already dealt with Jesus' resurrection when Pastor Nathan showed us that on the third day he rose again is the central and therefore most important phrase in the whole creed. Now we're talking about our own bodily resurrection, the resurrection of the body. And, um, and as, as I talk about these two phrases, I'll talk about them together. Scripture is very clear that we are the sorts of beings that will live forever including in arguably the most famous verse of, of the whole Bible, John 3.16, which says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, which means trusts in him for their salvation, will not die, but will have everlasting life. Uh, the other reason I'll camp on the, the phrase, the resurrection of the body, is that every time we talk about the resurrection of the body, it implies or entails belief that we will go on living forever, okay? But wait a minute. Uh, the death rate of humans is something very near 100%, right? We die. So how is it that we can live forever? So this brings up the, the topic of, of our nature. What, what kind of beings are we? So several members of my family are big fans of Jane Austen. And, uh, and I sometimes tease my wife by quoting Mr. Darcy at the end of what I understand is the uh, movie version of Pride and Prejudice. So Mr. Darcy's been out on the moor uh, stealing himself for confessing his love for the heroine of the piece. I think one of the Bennett girls or somebody. Um, and so he comes in wet and disheveled and with very little emotion says, you have bewitched me, body and soul. <clears throat> and no matter what we think about the actor's delivery at this crucial moment of this movie, he's got it biblically, biblically correct. We are 
body and soul. We're a unity of body and soul. We are not, as the increasingly popular view of physicalism in our day has it, we're not merely body and brains such that when our bodies die, we die. Scripture is very clear that we are body and soul. Um, I did a little Q&A with the uh, Antioch youth, high school youth uh, six or seven weeks ago. And one of the questions was, do I have a soul? The Christian answer is no, you are a soul, you have a body. So let me just lay it out real briefly here. I actually did a, an entire sermon on this within the last two years on the reality of the human soul. Uh, we are embodied souls. We are souls who have bodies. We are embodied souls. If we experience the death of these bodies before the Lord comes again, we will enter a phase of disembodiment. But then we look forward at the end of time to being re-embodied. And as we'll see in some of the scriptures we'll look at in a bit, those new bodies will not be perishable. They will live forever as our soul will live forever. Okay? Um, So let's look at, oh, let me say that Scripture nowhere presents an argument for this view that we are embodied souls. It begins by assuming it, okay? Just as Scripture never lays out an argument for God's existence, it begins from the reality of God's existence. The same is, is true with the embodied soul idea. Nonetheless, we see it reflected in the, uh, in the writings of many of the different co-authors of Scripture. So, from 2 Corinthians 5, which is the, the first scripture that Gretchen read for us, just a little portion of that. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So what Paul is laying out here is that since Jesus ascended into heaven, we don't experience his presence to the degree that the disciples did when he was here on earth. And so as long as we stay here in the body, we are not present with the Lord as we might be, but there will come a time when, if we experience the death of these bodies, we'll be more present with the Lord at that point. Now, I need to be careful to distinguish this view, which, which philosophers called substance dualism, from a more radical form of dualism, which comes not from the Bible, but from Greek philosophy, and which influenced early heresies in Christianity, uh, like Gnosticism. So the Greek view is that the body is, the physical, the body is wholly bad, and that when the soul departs from the body, that's all good, and that's ultimate good. That's not the biblical view. While there are benefits to the disembodied state, as Paul says, we'll be more present with the Lord. And as Shakespeare said, when we put off this mortal coil, we all know that there are sufferings and pains in this life that we'll be free of when our soul leaves the body. But nowhere does scripture portray that disembodied state as the ideal condition. In fact, many times scripture makes it clear that, that that's kind of a lethargic or sleepy, though conscious state that we'll be in at that time. The promise of Scripture is that in the end, we will be re-embodied. 
that we will once, once again, our souls will take on bodies and those bodies will be imperishable. Okay? Uh, so let's look at the other scripture that, uh, from John 11 that uh, Gretchen read to us. Jesus talking to Martha after Lazarus has died. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha, like most of the Jews of Jesus' day, with the exception of the, Pharisees, of the Sadducees, believed that there would be a resurrection of the body uh, even before coming before Christ's uh, teaching and such. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Part of the reason that uh, the Jews of Jesus' day believed in the resurrection is because it's found in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Isaiah 26, 19, we read, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. And it is good news. It's, good. it's worth celebrating. Um, so as we look at more of these scripture passages that talk about the resurrection of the body, I really want to get us to, to the answer to three questions today. And I, we spend time on this now because we don't get a lot of teaching on it generally. Um, but the questions would be, when does the resurrection of our bodies occur? What will our resurrection bodies be like? And where, where will we spend eternity? Okay, let's look at Daniel 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. But at that time, and this is in the context of the end of the age that Daniel is prophesying about, prophesying about, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In John 5, 28 through 29, it's... It's said this way, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let me stop there just a second and, and, and give you a foretaste of where we're going with the last question, where will we spend eternity? Notice that in all these passages, the end game is resurrection and everlasting life as the creed has it. It's not heaven, okay? We'll, we'll get there in a minute. First <laughs> uh, Corinthians 15, which is uh, a long chapter in scripture that talks a whole lot about uh, eschatology in the future. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. What Paul's comforting the Corinthian believers with here is that we're all gonna experience the resurrection of the body. When Jesus comes again to establish his kingdom on earth, there will be some Christ followers who are still alive and haven't experienced death. The dead will experience the resurrection of the body right then, but so will the living. That is, somehow our present bodies will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, into our resurrection bodies, even if we're alive at the time that Jesus returns, okay? So throughout Scripture, the resurrection of our bodies is a future general event. It doesn't happen at our death. There is an intermediate state. 
It happens at the close of the age when Christ consummates the coming of his kingdom of heaven to earth when he comes back to establish his kingdom. So very briefly, what will our resurrection bodies be like? Well, in the 1 Corinthians passage, our resurrection bodies will be imperishable, whereas, as we well know, our present bodies are perishable, right? That is, it's not just our souls that will live forever, but our resurrection bodies will live forever as well. They're, they will not experience decay, and they certainly won't experience death. Earlier in this same chapter, uh, the contrast between our present bodies and our glorified resurrection bodies is pictured as the, the, the contrast between a seed and a full-grown plant. In 2 Corinthians 5, which is, the, is one of the passages Gretchen read, our present bodies are considered to our resurrection bodies as a tent is to a great building. And then let's look at uh, Philippians 3, 20, 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So on the question of what are our resurrection bodies look like, that's about all I can give you. Uh, scriptures seems to point to a, both a continuity between our present bodies and our future bodies, that is, will be recognizable, just as Jesus was to his disciples, but also a great discontinuity, like the difference between a seed and a full-grown plant, the difference between a tent and a building, the difference between a perishable, decaying body and one that is imperishable and glorious. The bottom line is it's all good news, folks. <laughs> um, so, the last question I have for you is where will we spend eternity? Uh, and I, I have to spend a little bit of time on this because um, it's not the answer you think. Uh, most of you are probably sitting there thinking, well, it's a no-brainer, we go to heaven, right? The problem is that comes from our culture and not really from Scripture. Uh, so how many of you here were, were here two, two weeks ago, I think it was, when Pete taught about uh, Jesus ascended into heaven and is coming back to judge the living and the dead? Okay, I have two reasons for asking that question. The first one is to remind you that that was a short sermon. And I'm here to tell you that Pete's min unused minutes have rolled over, <laughs> and I might use some of those minutes, okay? <laughs> The second reason to share that with you is because Pete kind of laid the groundwork for me when he, he told us that heaven is not in outer space. It's not part of this universe. It's not part of the space and time of this creation. He also shared with us that when Jesus ascended into heaven, that's not denying the fact that we consider Jesus to be omnipresent, present with us here this morning in our hearts, us and him present everywhere. So, uh, as we look at these verses on the resurrection, we need to understand that the promise is, is not heaven. The promise is resurrected bodies and everlasting life. The thing I like about the creed is that it doesn't go beyond Scripture to promise us things that Scripture doesn't promise us. Um, so, so let me come at this from a really big picture view. The story of the Bible from beginning to end is not one in which God gives up on creation, deeming it hopelessly fallen and dying, and 
at the last minute desperately providing a way of escape for some of his redeemed creatures. Rather, the, the narrative of Scripture is a story of redemption of God's very good creation, in which, after the creation event itself, the two most significant events are the incarnation, perfectly righteous life, death and resurrection of the second person of the Godhood, and the second coming, when Jesus will culminate the fulfillment of his kingdom on earth. That's the story of scripture. The gospel that Jesus preached was the inbreaking of the heavenly kingdom on earth, okay? It's not a gospel of we earthlings being somehow transported to some other place. In scripture, heaven serves to connote the dwelling place of God and of his angels and the seat of God's kingdom for now and the place from which the redeemed creation will descend at the end of the age. Heaven is primarily portrayed as a spiritual realm and is probably not correctly considered to be space and time, okay? Um, it is nowhere explicitly promised in scripture that we will go to reside in heaven. We infer that idea from the fact that Jesus ascended into heaven and that when we die, we will be in his presence. But as Pete shared with us, his presence is everywhere. The favored way of scripture talking about the intermediate state when we are disembodied for a period is the, the word sheol, especially in the Old Testament, the grave. Um, I'm, I'm not gonna be real dogmatic about this, but scripture doesn't tell us we go to heaven. Uh, an example of how we get this wrong is uh, when, when I was in church as a youth, I was taught a song called, uh, well, I don't know what it was called. It went, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. Anybody heard that song? Problem is, that's not biblical. In his dream in Genesis 28, Jacob envisioned a ladder. But it was a conduit by which angels and eventually God himself were coming down to earth. There was no mention of anybody going up to heaven. Okay? And we get that wrong. And, and so our view of eternity is, is more, uh, more formed by Dante and popular culture and even popular church culture than it is from a clear reading of Scripture. When Scripture, when New Testament Scriptures, Paul especially, are trying to contrast the present world systems in which we live, the ones that are where we're tempted by the world and the flesh and the devil with our actual position as the redeemed of Christ, heaven is in that contrast uh, the place where our names are written, where our citizenship is to be found, where our treasures and rewards are stored up. But the fulfillment and realization of that naming and citizenship and, and, and the rewards and crowns and such is at the end of the age when the new creation comes down to earth, okay? Nobody's walked out yet, so we'll, we'll go on here. <clears throat> so an example of that is Colossians 3, one through four, which says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay? The contrast is, should we be worried about worldly systems, or should we be thinking about heavenly kingdom things? But it goes on to say, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When, where is he going to appear? He's going to appear on earth when he comes again. Uh, Acts 1.11, where uh, Jesus has just ascended into heaven. There are two angels standing by and say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taking, taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus' time, even Jesus' own time in heaven is finite. There comes a time when he comes back to earth. So in Acts 3.19 through 21, yep, it's up there. Peter is preaching to fellow Jews in Solomon's portico, and he says, Repent therefore and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And here's the phrase I really want you to hear. Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Jesus is in heaven until it's time for his enthronement here in the new creation on earth. So Jesus prefaced many of his parables with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like, and proceeded to tell a story which involved either uh, stewards waiting for the return of their master, or virgins waiting for the coming of the bridegroom, or farm workers waiting for the return of, of the owner of the vineyard, right? In all these parables, the place that is meant to show what the kingdom of heaven is like is the place currently occupied by the stewards, the virgins, the farm workers, and not the place the far distant land to which the owner, the bridegroom, or, or the master had gone. There's nothing in the parable about those places. The kingdom of heaven is here, or will be at the end of the age. Uh, summer before last, Pete took us through the Sermon on the Mount, which began with the Beatitudes. And we saw that the Beatitudes are a series of blessings pronounced by Jesus upon the outcasts of that society, telling them that in fact, they are most eligible for the kingdom of heaven when it comes. And two of the first beatitudes are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And skipping one, the, next, the third one is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, what's going on here? Is this like a game show? Is, is, is being poor in spirit door number one? And, and if I choose that option, I get the kingdom of heaven, whereas door number two is being meek and inheriting the earth? No, this is Hebrew parallelism. It's two ways of saying the same thing because the kingdom of heaven will be on earth at the end of the story, at the end of the age, okay? Um, we like to ask, will my favorite pet be in heaven, right? You've asked that, right, or had that discussion. Uh, I'd submit that the answer is no, but what does it matter? Neither will you be. <laughs> what, what scripture is clear on is that there will be animals in the new creation. In fact, 
in the picture of the new creation that we have in Revelation 5, there will not only be people of every tongue and tribe and nation there, but there will be every living species from the skies and from the, the waters and from the land and from under the land. And certainly that would include your favorite cat and dog. In fact, in the picture we have way back in Isaiah of the end of the age and the coming new kingdom, that's where we read in Isaiah 11, I think it is, that the lion will lie down with the lamb. There'll be animals in the new creation, which is our eternal destiny. Uh, in fact, that passage in Isaiah ends with the, the concluding phrase of that passage is, for at that time the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So let's look real quickly at two passages that have most often been used to infer that our destiny is somehow uh, in heaven. And the first is John 14. Uh, and the first part of John 14 reads, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, you would have told you, I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? <clears throat> Tom Rowley reminded me last week that this is the, this is the passage which was turned into a, a very popular Christian song 15, 20 years ago by Audio Adrenaline, Big, Big House right? We look forward to a big, big house in heaven, and it's got a big, big yard where we can play football, right? So let me point out that if we were to take that song literally, and there is a big, big yard, <clears throat> because there will be people there from every tribe and tongue and nation, the football we would be playing would not be American football, but would be <laughs> soccer, okay? Let's make that clear. But more importantly, if we are to take it literally that Jesus has prepared a big, big house for us, that big, big house is not in heaven. It's in the new creation, which will come down at the end of the age, okay? But the passage goes on, and Jesus, continuing to comfort his disciples, says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. A little later in that same comforting passage, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And still later in the same passage, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. God is coming to make his home with us, we're not going to make our home where he is now, okay? Um, but, but arguably the passage that has been most misunderstood and, and created all kinds of confusion about our eternal destiny within the evangelical church is 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Again, Paul is comforting the believers of Thessalonica who are worried that their loved ones who have already died will miss Jesus' return and, and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. And in that comforting, Paul says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, the second coming. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. In very recent church history, in 1820s to be specific, this phrase will be caught up, 
was turned into, into an entire eschatology that is contrary to everything all the scriptures I've been reading you says. This passage says nothing about then Jesus will do a UE and take us back up to heaven. The imagery that Paul is using here is that of a returning, conquering, victorious king coming back to his rightful throne. And rather than stay within the city walls and wait for him to get to the gates, as soon as we see the dust of his caravan, of his entourage, all the people will rush out to greet him and to escort him back with pomp and pageantry to his rightful place of enthronement. That's the picture here, not that we're beamed up and, and out of here and escaping from God's very good creation, okay? So you may have read books on different forms of eschatology, eschatology dispensationalism, and whether you're uh, a premillennialist or an amillennialist or a postmillennialist. And if you're a premillennialist, whether the rapture is gonna occur uh, before the tribulation or mid-tribulation or post-tribulation, all of that is not part of church history, and that's why the creed says nothing about it. So you don't need to settle yourself as a pre or a post or an amillennialist. Uh, if, if we were actually describing a biblical view of, of, of eschatology, we'd have to come up with something completely different because that was completely unknown, not only to the founders of the, uh, the, the authors of the Apostles' Creed, but to Christians throughout the church age up until very recent times. So there's a phrase that came down from more biblically literate times, at least to my childhood, when somebody wanted to talk about forever, they would say, until kingdom come. So if we want to describe a biblical eschatology, we'd, we'd call ourselves kingdom comers, right? Or if we wanted to just be true to the creed, which is true to the scriptures, we would say, uh, on eschatology, I'm a resurrection of the body and life everlastinger, right? I appreciate this about the creed, that is, it is very true to the scriptures and not, uh, not based on, on cultural implications of, of the eternity. So let's look at Revelation 21, 1 through 5, which describes the end of the age, the, the culmination of the redemption story. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. It's all good news, brothers and sisters, but we don't look forward to heaven. We look forward to the presence of the Lord, to the resurrection of the body and to life everlasting in the new creation when Christ comes back to establish his kingdom forever on earth. The, very, the next chapter, the very last chapter of Revelation has a, a thrice repeated phrase in it. And for, for the Hebrew mind, when you repeat something twice, say it three times, it's, it's, the, it's the most serious form of superlative. This, this can be taken as true. And in Revelation 22, we read in verse seven, and behold, I am, coming again, I am coming soon. In verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. In verse 20, surely I am coming soon. 
And the response is, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to a blessed future, begun already. The forgiveness of sins is ours today. Our death in Christ and our, and our citizenship in, in his kingdom of heaven are already established facts. We look forward to his coming again to once and for all establish his kingdom on earth. We may experience the death of these bodies before that happens. If so, we'll be in the presence of the Lord awaiting glorified, imperishable resurrection bodies which are made not for heaven but for the kingdom of heaven established on earth. As we come to the table today, we recognize how thankful we are for these truths, these promises with which the Apostles' Creed ends. The resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, the forgiveness of sins. As we celebrate Jesus' body that was broken and his blood that was shed, we need to recognize that until he comes again, this is the most significant event in all of church history, in all of human history, and in all of cosmic history. Because God had planned the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus before he established the earth. And in the new heavens and earth, in the new creation, when Jesus' throne is on earth among us, we'll be praising him and worshiping him, looking back at his death and resurrection. As Revelation 5 has it, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's the praise that we'll be giving in the new creation to Jesus. So come to the table as the, as the band plays uh, in great gratitude for the wonderful promises with which the Apostles' Creed ends, that we have and experience the forgiveness of sins, that we look forward to the resurrection of the body, and that we have life everlasting with our Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, great God, for these wonderful mysteries. Thank you for coming to earth, becoming human, and dying a, a horrible death on our behalf. May we spend eternity in your presence and giving you praise for that, that event. We come to your communion table seeking to experiencing, experience you in a, in a more intimate way this and every day forward, seeking communion with our fellow redeemed people, particularly here in your local body, but around the world. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.